Section 24 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Botany. Chapter 5. Development of Morphology. Part 1. We owe the term morphology to Goethe, to quote from Gable. He says, Scientific men in all times have striven to recognize living bodies as such, to understand the relations of their external, visible, tangible parts, and to interpret them as indications of what is within, and thereby in some measure to gain a comprehensive notion of the whole. We find, therefore, in the march of art, of knowledge, and of science, many attempts to found and construct a doctrine which we may name the morphology. It is quite evident, then, that morphology does not deal merely with the distinction and the naming of the outer parts of plants, although this, which really belongs to terminology, has been in part incorrectly called morphology. Morphology does demand the knowledge of the different appearances of the members of the plant body, but only as a means to an end. It requires not isolated facts, but the relation of facts to one another. Terminology can be based on the study of dried plants, but morphology has, as Goethe stated, to do with living bodies, which are involved in changes of a fixed character and are subjected to the influences exercised upon them by the outer world. It has, in other words, to do with that part of life phenomena which finds expression in the external configuration. In nature, the form and function of an organ stand in the most intimate relation to each other. Herbert Spencer says, Everywhere structures in great measure determine functions and everywhere structures are incessantly modifying structures. In nature, the two are inseparable cooperators, and science can give no true interpretation of nature without keeping their cooperation constantly in view. An account of organic evolution in its more special aspects must be essentially an account of the interactions of structures and functions. The first question to which we have to find an answer is, how came it, that the functions of organs were entirely divorced from morphology, continues Gable. It is, and rightly so, one of the fundamental declarations of this study, that the function of an organ tells nothing of its morphological significance. Or, in other words, the same function may be performed by organs of very different morphological value. Homologous organs must be distinguished from analogous ones. The tendrils of the vine and of the passion flower, for example, are shoot axes, whose leaves are entirely or almost entirely suppressed, but the tendrils of the leguminosae and of other plants, although alike in form and function to those of the vine and passion flower, are transformed leaves. The tendrils in the two cases are analogous, they are not homologous. This knowledge is one of the weightiest acquisitions of morphology. 
but it has been the cause of an incorrect generalization. Because organs of like morphological significance may take on different functions, the functions which they perform have been considered as of subordinate importance, and therefore of no moment in the determination of the characters of the organs. Hence, it has been concluded that they must be entirely neglected in the grouping of the different members of plants in general categories. This conclusion is erroneous. It has led to an untenable position, especially in that fundamental problem of morphology which, from the time of Goethe, has been styled the doctrine of metamorphosis. By this we understand the fact that, manifold as are the organs of plants, they can be referred back to a few fundamental forms through whose transformation the many and different members of the plant body have arisen. When we inquire how these primary forms and their transformations have been represented to us, we meet with different conceptions on the part of those authors who have taken pains to reflect upon the idea with which they dealt. In the idealistic morphology, as it was expounded by Goethe, A. Brown, and Hanstein, the doctrine of metamorphosis concerned itself with an essentially theoretical construction. Goethe himself has plainly stated his view as follows. That which according to our idea is equal may in reality appear either as equal or as similar, or indeed as completely unequal and dissimilar. This is the essence of the pliant life of nature. In somewhat other form, this idealistic notion has been preserved inasmuch as the history of development was raised by the labors of K. F. Wolf, R. Brown, and Schleiden to the rank of one of the most important aids to organography. The view which I have called the differentiation theory is based, as indeed the whole of the doctrine of metamorphosis, on the study of the transformation of leaves, the manifold character of which is well known. The differentiation theory assumes that, at the vegetative point of the shoot, indifferent primordia arise which are capable of development according to the needs of the plant in manifold ways, but have this in common. They are leaves. The other view assumes a real transformation of a primordium in such a way that, for example, the primordium of a foliage leaf, instead of developing actually into a foliage leaf, can become, in the mature condition, a leaf of quite a different character. That the study of morphology should not have developed as rapidly as that of systematic is not to be wondered at, and other than the passing references which will be found, it would be purposeless to dilate upon the crude ideas of the earlier writers. While it cannot be said that he was by any means the first to consider morphological problems, in many ways de Candolle's work afforded a sounder foundation for proper morphological conceptions than most of his predecessors. The efforts of Jusseau, de Candolle, and Robert Brown were directed to the discovery of the relationship between different species of plants by comparing them together, says Sachs. The doctrine of metamorphosis, founded by Goethe, set itself from the first to bring to light the hidden relationship between the different organs of one and the same plant, as de Candolle's doctrine of symmetry 
derived the different species of plants from an ideal plan of symmetry or type, so the doctrine of metamorphosis assumed an ideal fundamental organ from which the different leaf forms in a plant could be derived. The stem came into consideration only as carrying the leaves. The root was almost entirely discarded. As the resemblance of nearly allied species of plants suggests itself naturally and unsought to the mind of the unbiased observer, so also does the connection between different organs of a leafy nature in one and the same plant. Goethe's conception of the matter was from the first much less clear, and chiefly because he was never able to bring the abnormal into its true connection with the normal, or ascending metamorphosis. In the first sentence of his Doctrine of Metamorphosis, 1790, he says, That is open to observation that certain exterior parts of plants sometimes change and pass into the form of adjacent parts, either wholly or in greater or less degree. In the cases of which Goethe is here thinking, a distinct meaning can be fixed to the word metamorphosis. If, for example, the seeds of a plant with normal flowers produce a plant which has petals in place of stamens, or in which the ovaries are resolved into green expanded leaves, it is actually the case that a plant of a known form has given rise to another plant of a different form. In other words, a change, or metamorphosis, has really taken place. But we cannot reason in this way, in the case of that which Goethe calls normal or ascending metamorphosis. For the plant taken as constant, the idea of metamorphosis has only a figurative meaning. The abstraction performed by the mind is transferred to the object itself. If we ascribe to it a metamorphosis which has really taken place only in our conception, the case would be different if we could assume that the stamens and other organs of the plants lying before us were ordinary leaves in their progenitors. So long as this assumption of an actual change is not even hypothetically made, the expression change or metamorphosis is a mere idea. This distinction Goethe has not made. He did not clearly see that his normal ascending metamorphosis can only have the meaning of a scientific fact if a real change is assumed to take place in the course of propagation, in this case, as in that of abnormal metamorphosis or misinformation. In the years immediately before and after 1840, a new life began to stir in all parts of botanical research, in anatomy, physiology, and morphology. Morphology was now specially connected with renewed investigations into the sexuality of plants and to embryology, and attention was no longer confined to the phanerograms, or flowering plants, but was extended to the higher and later on to the lower, cryptogams, or flowerless plants, the old division of Linnaeus. 
These researches into the history of development first became possible when Van Mole had restored the study of anatomy and Nigeli had founded and elaborated the theory of cell formation about the year 1845. The success of both these inquirers was due to the previous development of the art of microscopy. It was the microscope which revealed the facts on which the foundations of the new research were laid, while its promoters at the same time started from other philosophical principles than those which had hitherto prevailed among botanists. Serious attention to microscopy was one of the causes which introduced the best observers to the practice of inductive inquiry and gave them an insight into its nature. And in a few years' time, when the actual results of these investigations began to appear, and when a wholly new world disclosed itself to botanists, especially in the cryptogams, then questions arose on which the dogmatic philosophy had not essayed its ancient strength. The facts and the questions were new and untouched, and presented themselves to unprejudiced observation in a purer form than those which during the first three centuries had been so mixed up with the old philosophy and with the principles of scholasticism. Von Moll, who only occasionally occupied himself with morphological subjects, says Sachs, was a firm adherent of the inductive method and was bent on the establishment of individual facts rather than of general principles. But the founders also of the new morphology, Schleiden and Nigeli, started from philosophical points of view, which, different as they were in the two men, had yet two things in common, a demand for severely inductive investigation as the foundation of all science, and the rejection of all teleological modes of explaining phenomena, in which latter point their opposition to the idealistic nature philosophy school was most distinctly manifested. They had indeed one very important point of contact with the school, the belief in the constancy of organic forms, but this belief not being connected with the platonic doctrine of ideas was with them only a recognition of everyday observation, and was therefore of less fundamental importance, being felt merely as an inconvenient element in the science. Treating the question in this way, and influenced by the results of the new researches, they either inclined to entertain the idea of descent before the appearance of Darwin's great work, or gave a ready assent to the principle of the new doctrine, though they expressed some doubts respecting matters of detail. Hofmeister's researches in morphology and embryology threw an entirely new light on the relations of affinity between the great groups in the vegetable kingdom, and were leading more and more to the view that there must be some special peculiarity in the question of the constancy of organic forms. But the idea of evolution in the vegetable kingdom was brought more distinctly home to men's minds by paleontological researches. Unger especially, while advancing the knowledge of the structure of cells and of vegetable anatomy and physiology, and generally taking a prominent part in the development of the new botany, 
applied the results of its investigations to the examination of primeval vegetation and showed the morphological and systematic relations between past and existing floras. After twenty years of preliminary study, he declared distinctly in 1852 that the immutability of species is an illusion, that the new species which have made their appearance in geological periods are organically connected, the younger having arisen from the elder. In the year that Darwin's book on the origin of species appeared, Nigelli wrote, External reasons, supplied by the comparison of the floras of successive geological periods, and internal reasons given in physiological and morphological laws of development and in the variability of the species, leaves scarcely a doubt that species have proceeded one from another. Though these words might not contain a theory of descent, capable at once of scientific application, yet they show that the latest researches and candid appreciation of facts were compelling the most eminent representatives of the botany of the day to give up the constancy of forms. At the same time, in the genetic morphology, which had developed itself mainly under Nigelli's guidance since 1844, and still more in embryology, which in Hofmeister's hands was leading to results of the greatest systematic importance, there lay a fruitful element destined to correct and enrich Darwin's doctrine of descent in one essential point. That doctrine, in its original form, sought to show that selection, the result of the struggle for existence, combined with perpetual variation, was the sole cause of progressive improvement in organic forms. But Nigelli, relying on the results of German morphology, was able, as early as 1865, to point out that this explanation was not satisfactory because it leaves unnoticed certain morphological relations, especially between the large divisions of the vegetable kingdom, which scarcely seem explainable by mere selections and breeding. While Nigelli showed that Darwin's principle of selection was well adapted to explain fully the adaptation of organisms to their environment and the suitableness and physiological peculiarities of their structure, he pointed out that in the nature of plants themselves there are intimations of law of variations which lead to a perfecting of organic forms and to their progressive differentiation independently of the struggle for existence and of natural selection. The importance of this result of morphological research has since been recognized by Darwin. Thus, Nigelli supplied what was wanting in the theory of descent and gave it the form in which it is adequate to explain the problem already recognized by the systematists of the old persuasion, namely, how it is possible for the morphological affinity of species in a system to be in so a high degree independent of their physiological adaptation to their environment. The modern teaching on vegetable cells, modern anatomy, and morphology, and the improved form of the theory of selection, are the product of inductive inquiry since 1840. It is one of the characteristic features of this period of botany that morphology enters into the closest connection with the doctrine of the cell, 
with anatomy and embryology, and that researches, especially into the process of fecundation and the formation of the embryo, form to some extent the central point of morphological and systematic investigations. At this time, when there was such a necessity for general, critical coordination and attack on the methods of the day, Schleiden began his writing, and all his work were to be found side by side with facts of real importance, reflections of the man himself, and generally coarse polemic, coupled with a free praise or blame of other workers. Schleiden's greatest contribution was his establishment of the true nature of the cell and the propounding of what may be called the cell doctrine of the structure of plants. This was published in 1848, a year before the appearance of a similar contribution by Schwann as regards animal forms. Both of these investigations mark a new epoch in the study of the structure of organic forms, and from that the researches into the inner morphology of plants made rapid progress. Schleiden's mode of dealing with the natural system must be reckoned among the good services which he rendered to method, not because his classification of the vegetable kingdom presents any specially interesting features or brought to light any new affinities, but because we see an attempt made for the first time to give detailed characters drawn from morphology and the history of development to the primary divisions, and because by this means the positive and distinct nature of the cryptogams was from the first clearly brought out. The old way of treating morphology, as though there were only phanerogams in the world, and then having recourse to unmeaning negatives in dealing with the cryptogams, was thus set aside, much to the profit of the immediate future, which directed its attention specially to the cryptogams. End of Part 1 End of Section 24